but still for me it's those it's those conversations in that room after you've done the scan talking about what you found what this might be and and helping parents on what can sometimes be quite a long journey Hello and welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine, a podcast that hopes to share some of the wisdom and experience of people working in this brilliant field. My name is Dr. Jane Curry. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine. Think about the coffee room conversations you enjoyed with a trusted mentor. There are some great educational materials out there, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, but as a subspecialty trainee in fetal medicine, this was the kind of thing I really wanted to listen to for inspiration and motivation when times were more challenging. We hope to speak to a range of people, some of whom you might have heard of, perhaps even your fetal medicine heroes, but also some people whose names you don't know, as it's not just about niche medical celebrity, although I do love that too. Welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine, Professor Katie Morris. Hi Jane, nice to see you. So Katie, or Professor Morris, is Professor of Obstetrics and Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of Birmingham, Director of the Birmingham Clinical Trials Unit, and an Honorary Consultant in Maternal Fetal Medicine at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. She's also the current President of the British Maternal Fetal Medicine Society and has got roles in several other national organisations. Is there anything else that you would add to that? No, I think that's perfect. Thanks, Jane. (laughs) Okay, so it's the real honour and privilege to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you for finding the time to join us. I know you're very busy. So to start, perhaps you could begin by talking us through your route into fetal medicine and how you've ended up doing what you do. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of had to start that talking about my route into obstetrics because it it came as obstetrics first, which I think is what happens for um, a lot of people. And that actually started as a medical student in my final year. I can still consider it lucky that when I was at medical school, you got, I think it was about three months doing me. (laughs) And I had to go, I was um, a trainee, a medical student in Liverpool, and my training was across two places. But one of them was a very... um, a smaller kind of DGH out in Chester and it was so far away from where I lived that I had to go live there and that meant that you know I did sort of all the night shifts still you still had to get the 10 deliveries that you did yourself but that really meant that I was there sort of all the time on the labour wards you know doing deliveries being able to assist as a medical student at cesarean sections all of those experiences and I just I think I just loved that everything was quite quick and short. (laughs) So that kind of that you get to care for somebody quite intensely, get that relationship. And then at the end, hopefully, you know, there's that that joyful occurrence of the baby being born and then kind of they they go off and they move on and, 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 you know, you've had your involvement. But I also loved the, the true, I think, that it gives you of this relationship between medicine and surgery. I didn't think that I necessarily wanted to be a surgeon, but loved it when I started doing it, but couldn't give up the medicine part. Loved that talking to people, finding out about them, about their lives, really sort of, you know, getting to know people and and dealing with conditions over a longer period of time than than, than just the surgery. So I, I knew after mm-hmm. that attachment, I knew that I wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology thought it was probably going to be the obstetrics but but didn't quite know so much so that actually I I um, didn't do my house jobs as they were I'm that old to have had house jobs (laughs) didn't do my house day to do my house jobs in Liverpool I went to Leicester because they had house jobs in Obs and Gynae which was really unusual at that time a bit bit more akin to how the foundation program is now but yeah moved there to do an Obs and Gynae foundation post uh, well uh, house officer post and again absolutely loved it 
and then was able to get in those terms um, an SHO post. I did almost leave and become a neonatologist. (laughs) What? (laughs) I was on the border. I was doing my part Mm. two at the time in Ottengaini and um, as part of my training programme I was able to do six months in neonates and I absolutely loved it. And I was on the waiver and I made this pact with myself that if I failed my part two, I would change to new dates. <laughs> and I think I can say, luckily now mm-hmm. I passed part two. And, and actually, I think it was just that waiver of this commitment that you're giving to something if you get your membership. But I did. But actually, it was at that time as well that I was um, at a hospital called Leicester General. And again, it was it, it's being in a lot of my experiences have, have been kind of t- twofold, being in a really big, busy university hospital and getting exposed to lots of really complex stuff. But also this time being able to be spent in a, you know, a slightly smaller district general hospital and actually being able to find some things that I wouldn't have normally found and, and spend a bit of time doing them. Yeah. And I was able to my attachment uh, in one of my obstetrics uh, sort of six months as part of my SHO jobs was at Leicester General with Ian Scudamore, now vice president of the college and uh, mm-hmm. she budget. And they were fetal medicine consultants and they allowed me to come to their clinics and um, go to some fetal medicine sessions. And I can remember it to this day seeing Ian Scudamore put in a fetal bladder shunt. It was just this there's a baby in the womb and we're able to give it a treatment. It, it was just this overwhelming, how amazing is that? And that really made me, it was sort of my expo- first exposure to proper fetal medicine and interventions. Loved the ultrasound. I love kind of fetal growth, which is where some of my research kind of went later on. But also it was kind of that, um, obstetrics is amazing. I love labour wards, but there's something that I can do during a pregnancy to, to really help in, in kind of quite, quite complicated situations, that challenge of your two patients <laughs> as ever. Um, but yes, it was seeing him put in that first shot. I don't know if I've actually ever told him this. He may listen to this and <laughs> suddenly hear it. Um, seeing him put in that shunt and thinking that is actually really quite amazing. And, and really sort of a plan to stay in Leicester and do my fetal medicine training there and kind of get a subspect training programme and just kind of carry on. And that was it. I was going to be a fetal maternal medicine consultant with an interest in growth and some interventions. Yeah. And then I found out about research. <laughs> <laughs> People always say, you know, what's the background in research? I didn't have one. <laughs> So I was one of those people at medical school who they said, do you want to interplate? And I was like, no, I want to be a doctor. I'm going to get there. I need to get to the end. Let me get there. I didn't interplate, got my jobs that I've told you about, got my number as it was in the day, was really pleased. I got my measurement. I got my number. I'm on my path. I'm going to get there. And then I got to sort of two years before getting my CCT as it was then. So I was sort of the equivalent of an NTN5. And I thought, oh my goodness, and I'm, I'm, I'm always at the end. And I can remember this uh, sort of moment where I was I was dealing with something within obstetrics at the attachment I was at the time and thinking, a woman asked me a question, why are you going to do that? And I was like, I don't know the answer. Of course, I knew that's what the guidelines said and that's what I was meant to do. But I thought, I can't explain to you why, what is underlying that? What's the evidence? Why have we as a body of experts or you know, the college decided that this should happen? And so I went back to the guideline and looked at the evidence and there wasn't any evidence. It was just like this body of clinical opinion. <laughs> Well, that, that's great that, you know, we, we have that and we know what other, our colleagues think, but why do we not know more than, well, this is just what we all think? And it, it was kind of that 
light bulb moment of actually there's this whole other branch of medicine that is about trying to answer that question and I thought I never want to sit in front of a woman obviously it's happened loads of times since but it was that <laughs> I don't want to sit in front of a woman and not feel that a I don't know what's underpinning that guidance I don't I want to be able to understand that evidence and be able to interpret it and individualize it for the woman in front of me but also I want to be making that evidence <laughs> So I think I've sort of stuck with, right, I've never done, I didn't interclate, I've not really done anything since, I'd written a few case reports and things like that. So yeah. um, I've been to BMFMS a few times, can still remember my first BMFMS, which was in York. And I thought, right, I'm going to go to BMFMS next, armed with my CV, which was on paper at the time, <laughs> and my email address. And I'm just going to approach a few people. And I had oh, wow. somebody in my sights who was Mark Kilby. Yeah. Because of maternal fetal medicine, Birmingham, you know, wasn't too far away. And so I did. I accosted him actually in Nottingham at uh, BMFMS then and this was 2005 and I just went up to him and I said I'd love to come and work with you if you've got any opportunities I'll come do research I'll come do anything please can I give you my CV my email address wow. and it was just one of those kind of moments that he just happened to have got a grant that he was looking for a research fellow for he asked me like a few weeks to go over and meet him and um to hear about the grant and do a proper interview and then that was it three months later I was there doing um an MD so I had to obviously always be forever grateful that he took a chance on somebody who <laughs> hadn't done anything like that before. But yeah, so that was my MD, which was at the time in um, around fetal growth restriction. Mm-hmm. And as ever happens, he was also at the same time starting to do Pluto, which was the trial of bladder shunting. Yeah. And asked me to be part of that. And that was my first experience of a randomised controlled trial. So again, that, that almost mm-hmm. sort of seemed like it was serendipity, you know. <laughs> A bladder shunt had got me interested in fetal medicine <laughs> and here I was doing a, a trial in it because I'd discovered academia. And yeah, then I just stayed and then transferred my training, got an academic clinical lecturer's job and did my um, suspect training in Birmingham. And then following that, it was, you know, do you want to train to do the interventions and and, and train yeah. to be an interventionist? And yeah, it all seems like it was meant to be, but there was never <laughs> any grand plan. It was kind of, I really want to do this. I'm really interested in it. How do I make it happen? What do I do? I'm sure you've got moments like that, (laughs) you know, just presented the perfect opportunity. That's a fabulous story. I I really like that. So there's lots of things that that made me think about. Going back to the beginning, one of them was they don't have three-month placements anymore in Obs and Gynae. How do you find that then, trying to condense ONG into however long the placement is in Birmingham and get this the, the specialty to appeal to people in, in a realistic way and, and all that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, so it's a, a really great question. And I think we went through a period um, about four to five years ago where we took a lot of what they were learning by exposure and being on labour ward and things like that and transferred it to the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- their attachments decreased because of other pressures, because there yeah. were other things that had to be put into the curriculum, like evidence-based medicine that weren't there as much when I was at medical school and and that's entirely correct but I think there was a lot that we transferred to the classroom which meant that they knew it but they didn't experience it yeah and very importantly I think um I think it was about two years ago just before COVID then had to wait and then we introduced after COVID our medical students now do the night shifts on labour ward again and it's that that you know not everybody loves labour ward not everybody loves obstetrics but I don't think until you've done that until you've been there until you've experienced it until you've seen how amazing it can be and also how heartbreaking it can be Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have any idea whether that's a specialty that you want to do and we can't showcase 
use that in a classroom with a PowerPoint presentation. Um, we also very recently introduced, and um, we have a, a, a home birth service, mm-hmm. and they now spend time with our home birth service as well. So oh, those, that's amazing. Do you remember those 10 normal births that you <laughs> had to get, and now how you, you everybody's fighting for the normal birth? We, we yeah. can't deliver that anymore. You know, no, no, um, no. Excuse the pun. We can't provide that on our labour ward. You know, we've got medical students, we've got midwifery students, but just going out into a home birth setting and hopefully seeing that that normal physiological birth is so important whatever specialty you go into yeah definitely okay and then the other thing I was thinking about what what stage were you when you saw the um the blood shunt were you an SHO must have been I think I was probably towards the end of my SHO so I did a two-year it was called an SHO training program so it was six months of and gynae six months neonates six months of Zangaini, six months neonates. Yeah. And I just rotated through across the two hospitals in Leicester. And I think it was towards the end of one of those six months that I saw that. And and again, it's that you would never have thought to have asked to see it. And it was just lucky that I was attached to that team and got to see that. We now do it that our um, medical students can have um, one session within fetal medicine okay. uh, as part of their attachment to get in the seas. It's optional. They don't have to do it, but um, a significant number of them take it up. We've introduced a what's called a personal in, interest project for our second years in fetal medicine that they can choose as an optional attachment. And yeah, yeah I think just it's a specialty that people don't know about I mean a lot of people don't even know what obstetrics is or understand obstetrics <laughs> let alone that there's these whole subspecialties within that of fetal medicine maternal medicine all if you want to put specialties subspecialties within maternal medicine you know yeah um, in fetal medicine you know the genetics the interventions be, being able to just show people that this breadth but also the depth that we can go into yeah. and what we do is, is so yeah. important yeah, it really is. It's something I, I struggle with now with the way that our, our rotors are set up. Trainees in that sort of ST one to four, whatever, they can they can go through those whole years and never come to fetal medicine because their rotors don't have much give in them. Yeah, like you say, then then there's kind of no concept of what happens there. Yeah. Um, and that, that's quite sad because then sometimes people come and they say, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't know you did that. <laughs> uh, interesting. Just before I came to you, I'd been teaching uh, some of our second year medical students on, on maternal mortality. But we were talking about some of the changes that have happened in obstetrics uh, that have brought about some of the reductions of maternal mortality. And one of them we talked about was ultrasounds. Uh-huh. And I was trying to explain to them. And I, I think they must have thought I was such a dinosaur, you know, that <laughs> fetal medicine is such a young specialty because of ultrasound. And, that, you know, when I was at medical school, yes, ultrasound had been around for 10 years, but it wasn't what you see as ultrasound now. And trying to explain to them about images and how long it took and just, yeah, didn't get it. I think, they think you know, you can see an ultrasound on your smartphone now. And so- <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so that's what drew you to it. And what is it that that now still gives you joy about it? What do you like about it? Uh, so I think the first thing is I, um, you know, I, I was lucky that I did my subspect training over four years because I combined it with academic. Mm-hmm. And although towards the end, I was desperate to become a consultant. I'd had enough after 17 <laughs> years. <laughs> it's time to finish. Let me out the other end. I still, you know, I, I can see within that four years, all the extra experiences that I got to do, but but also the growing up and the maturity that I, I got to do to approach, you know, how I care for women and families. But the reason I say that is because that has continued. I've been a consultant in maternal fetal medicine now for seven years and I, I can still every day is something new, something I'm learning, something that I may have come across before, but not exactly in quite the same way. And that's one of the things that, you know, keeps me going to every clinic is there's going to be some new or, or some difference 
that that makes up what I'm seeing today in that clinic um there's going to be something that I'm going to have to go look up (laughs) still when medical students see me (laughs) like on google or or in a book and I'm going I can't remember everything and I have to use each of the resource or the phone a friend or you know those things that this is you know still a rapidly developing progressing and as I said really new specialty and that technology you know the technology the changes that have come about through genetics, as I said, ultrasound, all of those technologies that are allow us to really do things that we, we didn't do before is, is what keeps me interested in getting up in the morning. But I think if you said, if somebody took away all of that and said nothing else is ever going to change, yeah. the thing that really still would make me say, okay, that's fine, is that relationship that I develop with families. Mm-hmm. I think some, you know, what got me into it was that that oh my goodness, I can see the baby and I can I can treat that baby. You know, the, the doing and the trying to save and 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 to change stuff. Yes, of course, that's always the what you're trying to do. But I think yeah. being involved in some cases and, and caring for some families where you're having to give them the worst news, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. As in, you can't change that, you can't cure it, but you can still help them either, you know, make the best decisions for them as a family and also support them through that journey. That, to me, is what I've learned more over the years, the way I've developed more and the way that, you know, I see the job that I have to do. Yeah. And that's what every time, even if it and, that, and that's what's always different, whatever the, the, the case, whatever the, the difference on, on the scan on the baby, whatever the diagnosis, that journey is always different. And it always surprises mm-hmm. me how each time it's still slightly different in some different way for each family. And you get to, to, to you know, go with them and experience it. And yes, yeah, there's untold moments of joy being able to transfuse a baby in utero that would die if you didn't. And then you get to hold that baby. I try to sometimes make sure I'm on the elective cesarean section list sometimes that day or, you know, trying to get to deliver and hold that baby is you can't imagine it. You can see, you know, some of the pictures in the background when you get from your TTTS laser cases, the the, the finished article, if you like, the, the product at the end. Yes, of course, that's that's untold joy and pride of being able to help. But still, for me, it's those it's those conversations in that room after you've done the scan talking about what you found, what this might be, and and helping parents on what can sometimes be quite a long journey. I, I think that's so true. I think there's there's a lot of people who say, oh, I, I, I couldn't possibly do fetal medicine because I can't scan. I think there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. Also, I kind of think most people can learn to scan, but <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that when people say that? Um, I think it's getting easier. I mean, I know that, um, so I can remember we had to do a scan aptitude test before we could oh. find this suspect <laughs> training to, to check I think some people find it easier to scan. I think some people have that natural ability to turn something 2D into a 3D image. I wasn't a natural, I have to say. You know, it's one of the things that I've seen over the years. My my scan ability has Uh has improved and improved. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's just something that I think <laughs> I say to my husband, it's I can reverse park. It's a bit like reverse park. <laughs> I can do that. But I, I can see I've I've changed, you know, from a person who was it's from that, you know, having to always think about where you're going to move your hand or your probe or adjust it, that I can now, my, my brain and my hand do it automatically and I'm not having to think about those movements all the time. And that just develops and keeps developing over time. I think the ultrasound machines help us. <laughs> I, 
guess there's a you know there's there's an issue is the more and more the ultrasound machines do for us whether that art of scanning which is an art and a skill will disappear I don't know you know you've seen the automated systems for actually doing the scan and now there's some automated intelligence systems for actually interpreting the scan images I don't think that will happen and and they'll get rid of us as the scan yet but (laughs) I guess the other answer to your question is, you know, whatever happens, whatever advancements there are in the technology, you will still need that person to sit down and have those very difficult conversations that actually change what you've seen on scan uh, or don't change, but put what you've seen on scan and what the results are into context for that family, because the context is always important and you can't do that. A human being has to do that, has to be able to respond to what they say to you and help them understand that in the right context for them. Yeah. Yeah, so true. It reminds me of when people say, I've just got some quick Dopplers for you. And you're like, oh, there's no such thing. Because <laughs> I need to know a bit about them to, yes. to interpret the Dopplers and how we're going to manage it. <laughs> okay, so you've alluded quite a lot to, to this already, but just thinking about how fetal medicine has changed in the time you've been doing it. Yeah, so again, I think there's two things. That's how I've changed. Mm-hmm. And so then naturally my practice of fetal medicine has changed and, we, and we've discussed a little bit like that. And then I think the other thing is how uh, fetal medicine to me has just exploded. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, for lots of reasons, I think it is advancement in ultrasound technology. I think it's genetics and what we can offer in genetics. I think it's fetal interventions, that the more we have interventions, whether they be medical or surgical, the more we can offer treatment within the womb, that the more our specialty has to offer. But also, I think it's the advancements in neonatal care. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of things that we now manage or care for in fetal medicine that five to 10 years ago, those babies would not have been able to survive. And I, I don't think we can ever forget how hands in hand fetal medicine and neonatology and paediatric surgery, you know, go together um, yeah. and how their advancement is also our advancement and vice versa. Yeah, um, so true. I think... From when I first started, I think the other thing that's changed is the the counselling and the relationships. And that's for two reasons. I think the first is the amount of information, you know, the more information we have, the more we've got to be able to convey for our women and families to understand. And I find that information complicated. (laughs) I certainly can't remember sometimes what all of those genetics mean and, and, you know, all of those differences and you know, as I say, I have to sometimes turn to Google and the textbook and things like that. And can you imagine how that is for our families hearing some of those things for the first time and trying to put some of those very complex relationships that we we do automatically, you know, previous history, family history, um, obstetric history, what we've seen on scan, the tests that we've done, we put it all together for, for them. And then we're also then having to talk to them about this is where we are now. This is where we might be in six weeks time this is where we might be when your baby's born you know we're not just talking about that one moment in time so I think you know as the complexity and the depth and the knowledge that we're able to get from that technology that we have available to us and the more that we can offer actually the more complex our counselors become yeah. and the the more that has become a really important it was always important but a part of our job that actually you need to continuously be developing as an individual that we need to be giving more training into our trainees and an exposure in yeah so I mean coming on onto training then like 
you presumably have trainees working with you. You have subspecialty trainees. Do yeah. you have any ATSM trainees? Or are they so we have the two subspecialty trainees. We have mm-hmm. one ATSM trainee and yeah. we can have up to, um, depending on how many subspect trainees and ATSMs at the time, we can have up to two international fellows doing okay. subspect training for a short period of time with us as well. And how do you find that? How You know, I like to think of this podcast as being for people who are sort of near the start of that that journey, um, in my mind, the, the beginning of subspecialty. So they've got a really passionate interest, they've got some aptitude, and then they look at the consultants and go, gosh, how am I, how am I ever going to do that? Um, so I think know, my, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, I think my first answer to that would be don't be daunted, because as I said, I'm seven years in, I'm president of BMFMS, <laughs> I'm still learning every day. Yeah. every day there's something that I don't know that I have to look up I'm still ringing up my old you know my mentor and going I'm not sure and, and but that's the beauty of the specialty it's not stopping it's not stopping progressing I hope it will always be like that so I, I would first of all say to them don't be daunted mm-hmm. I would second of all say to them that it's a specialty that offers a lot of breadth so as I said you know we're almost getting micro specialties within a specialty but then also I think it's if you think about what we're now beginning to offer with maternal medicine networks and fetal medicine networks that opportunity I think there's going to be a massive growth in that maternal fetal medicine that's offered outside big tertiary centres you know yeah. you, you and I work in a a big tertiary centre fetal interventions there's a whole host of maternal fetal medicine that goes on outside of that and I think ATSMs are great that allow us to train specifically for that role but I think what maternal fetal medicine networks are going to bring for me is the opportunity for that network and family and that I've got that person even now to pick up the phone to everybody else is going to have that opportunity and so I think it's going to open it up I hope there's going to be a whole new cohort of obstacles and gynae trainees who will be able to consider maternal fetal medicine as a specialty for them whether it's as an SST or whether it's as an ATSM within a network and really see that as a, as a career in itself yeah I mean there's lots of things that, that the whole conversation even before I became involved in BMFMS was should it be maternal and should it be fetal should they be <laughs> separate should you major yeah. minor we're still having those conversations now I until very recently practiced as both a maternal and a fetal medicine consultant so I had the same amount within my job yeah um, um, recent changes, obviously, with um, Mark Kilby retiring and me taking on more of an academic role, I've had, now had to focus on the fetal for the okay. interventions. I loved being both. Uh, I loved my maternal and my fetal medicine. So I'm very much of a, I think it's important that the training that we deliver is is a, is, is fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. that it's equitable that you can get the same access wherever you train um, yeah. that everybody's getting the same access to, to different things and importantly that we're training the workforce that we need you know that's essentially what we're doing is making sure that the families that we serve wherever they are have access to the right maternal fetal medicine workforce or if you like expertise and that's the bit that I think that we, we're not quite got right yet I think that the developments in ATSMs, the developments in maternal fetal and medicine networks are great, but I don't think we've quite got that curriculum right in being able to say, this is what an individual's aptitude and interests are. Mm-hmm. This is what the training unit they're in is, can deliver. And this is what we need at the end. And I don't know quite how we get to that. I know that the college are beginning to do a little bit around workforce planning in maternal and fetal medicine. And a great example of that is fetal medicine interventions. Mm-hmm. There's very few places that deliver those at the moment. That means that those training 
learning opportunities to learn how to deliver them off you and far between and often come about again by serendipity that you, your training's in that place and you get to be able to train. Also, that does mean that, you know, we, we don't have great geographical coverage and we don't have a lot of support when people are off and things like that. We, we've never actually yeah. looked and said, this is what we need to be able to deliver, as in this is the service need. Therefore, this is how we need to train people and, and deliver it. Yeah, I thought quite a bit about this recently about the geography um, and the southwest of England and some of the distances people have to travel to come to us. Um, and like you say, what do we do if we can't provide a service? Do you ever have a time when your intervention team can't can't cover? Because you've got quite a good setup, haven't you? you got yeah, we, we do at the moment. Robust. <laughs> yeah, since Mark Kilby retired, um, there's only me who's fully trained and I'm training okay. two other people. So we're, we're okay. on the precipice of being <laughs> what I would consider to be a sustained model, uh, which yeah, is I great. And, and, and yeah, that's been lovely training them. I think it's still the, the issue that people have to travel a long way. Um, I think there's still, you know, I think if you're traveling for an intervention post, most a lot of people accept that. But, you know, a lot of time people don't come and they don't need an intervention and then and they're having to go back and forth. I think, as you say, it's it's some people will have to travel 10 miles. Other people have to travel 100 miles. And, yeah. you know, so the, there's the challenges of being able to deliver, which is still quite thankfully a rare intervention and, and the need to make sure that people are trained and that your training model is sustainable versus trying to improve the care and the service that women get. I mean, I think, you know, one of the major changes that's happened in fetal medicine is obviously non-invasive prenatal testing, which has meant that amniocentesis and CVS have decreased. Yeah. And so how people use to generally maintain their needling skills and maybe supported them in doing a few transfusions a year, but they were doing other needling, that's completely been turned on its head. Yeah. And so, you know, this isn't just about thinking about, you know, lasers and shunts. This is thinking about transfusions, amniocentesis, CVS and how we deliver those services. Yeah. And is that something you've looked at regionally? Like, Is it starting to become a problem yet or are there still enough people that... Um, so we within um, the West Midlands have looked at it yeah. as a network and there, there have been changes that we've had to make, particularly with relation um, to CVS yeah. vision. Luckily, although we're quite a big region, we, we do have enough centres that are large mm-hmm. enough within that region. I think it's much more difficult if you, if you look to much more geographical wider regions where actually there isn't so much population density you know the West Midlands is fairly heavily densely populated (laughs) and so we've got some quite big centres within that region that allows quite a robust service then it becomes more difficult yeah and how do you support your suspects who are just starting out then with their amnios and CVSs because that is a daunting time it is (laughs) it is and again I think that's a skill that nobody quite talks about as as a a consultant actually a trainer to be a trainer and Mm -hmm. to be able to train people and we all have different styles but I think I've uh, I've realised that I've, and I've definitely grown into that role of being able to train people. So first of all, it's just kind of you've just got to let it, let it go. Of course, there's <laughs> the steps that you go through to make sure that there's a, a level of safety and competency, yeah. and and we, we do have some models, um, mm-hmm. and they train on some models first. You know, got to make sure that their ultrasound skills are, are, are up to scratch to be able to move on to that step. But there is always that first. <laughs> letting them you know put the needle in and, and what yeah. you do as a trainer the model that I've adopted through the lasers is very much that you're learning about the procedure as well as the steps uh-huh. and with lasers actually half of your success in the procedure is the mapping and the preparation that you do first and your understanding of the condition of both of the how it's affecting both of the babies where the cords are the cord roots insertions where you think your connections are going to be yeah. by how the baby's affected what sort of vascular connections do you think you're going to get how many of them from the 
position of the placenta is there is a bit that you think is going to be tricky and, and you know your trocar entry and so I think they get frustrated a little bit <laughs> that a lot of their time is just spent learning about the condition how the condition yeah. changes and mapping and telling me where they're going to operate you know I ask them to tell me what are you expecting to see when you we put that camera in yeah. where are you expecting to be lasering and then seeing if it matches when they do it yeah you know that the actual firing the laser and, and things like that is <laughs> in itself the easiest bit yeah. Um, the hardest bit is to, to, to have in, in your mind what you're going to expect when you, when you go in and how you're actually going to be doing the procedure. I tell them, you will be like me. You will the night before a, a lazy, you'll be up and you'll be mapping it in your head and thinking, this is what it's going to look like and this is where I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really good, actually. And and what about transfusions? You do both that as well as lasers? Yes. Again, that's quite a, a jump on from, from the CVS and the amnio when you start doing things yeah. to the baby or to a bit of cord. Yeah. So more more of a moving target yeah um so we start off with intraperitoneal so they start doing intraperitoneal transfusions first and then um they start off actually just sort of holding my hand as the transfusion is going because one of the hardest things in the transfusion yes getting it in the needle in the right place actually being able to stand still and hold (laughs) your hand really still for that period of time is quite difficult a lot of it (laughs) is about preparation it's about you know maximizing the environment for what you want to do so maximizing the position of the baby maximizing the sedation of mum and baby if it's not right then we wait a little bit and and we try again a little bit you know if the position's not right and then it's one of the hardest things for me is I I sort of started to learn to talk while I'm doing it Uh and so it's those subtle things that you're doing in your mind or with your hands that you don't know that you're doing that you've built up over a long period of time as techniques that really maximize that procedure yeah. And so I've, I've kind of, um, I tell them, I will talk to you the whole way through. And when they're doing it, I say, I will be talking to you as if I was talking to myself. <laughs> because it's things that you don't know that you do. Yeah. But you do because you've learned it by experience that I think are the hardest things to get across. So there's always the, you know, maximizing so that you've got the best position and diameter of the vessel to get into. So we, our preference is intrahepatic vein transfusions. So there's always about making sure that they've got the right section and teaching them that and making sure that you've got the vessel as open as you could and that you're going in 90 degrees and and, and things like that. And also we, we, you know, we never let them move on to transfusions until um, we we have a sort of stab the dot on amnio. So, you know, getting it into amnio is fine, but I say, I want you to get it and I want you to touch where my finger is on the screen. uh-huh, they get yeah. very used to putting a needle into a, a very specific position on a procedure yeah. that they're safe with. But yeah, a, a lot of it is, uh, I, I tell them when we're doing lasers, I say, I mean, I'm going to talk the whole way through and you just have to put up with me talking. <laughs> if I'm being quiet, then you know that it's either going <laughs> badly and I need to take over <laughs> or actually that you're fine by yourself and I'm off. <laughs> Ah, no, that, that's really interesting. You've sort of alluded there to a, a secret signal because it's an interesting dynamic doing interven- any sort of fetal medicine interventional procedure because obviously the patient is awake and part of the procedure. And it's quite different in that sense to a lot of other, I suppose in obstetrics, we're quite used to an awake patient, but it's quite intimate. Yeah. <laughs> and how you navigate that training at the same time as providing the highest quality care and the patient never feeling that they're in any in any danger. Yeah. Um, and how you your sort of techniques for swapping yeah. <laughs> um, or asking each other questions. For yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you've 
you've alluded to a few issues there and then there's also there's there's the safety issue of swapping operator during a procedure so we we have a really close relationship as the trainer and the trainee you know I've got three people if we take lasers as an example who are are at different stages of their training journey and the way we do each procedure will be different there's a a kind of stepwise process that we're going to sort of working up and, and through the complexities of the procedures and the bits of the procedures that they do but before every procedure they have to have seen the woman Mm -hmm. they have to scan the woman I then come in and scan the woman we've already discussed as I said that mapping what we think the procedure is going to be but we have an agreement before where we've talked about how we're going to take the lead or who's going to take the lead in the procedure who's going to be the first operator who's going to be the second operator are there any bits that we think are going to be tricky if we get to those bits what happen they all know that if I put my hands on theirs and I start moving it um, that that means that I, I want them to do it in a different way they know that if I kind of touch their hand and say just stand still for a minute it means I'm coming around to the other side and I'm taking (laughs) over but there's also the point that actually you have to try really hard not to do that and particularly with laparoscopy you know somebody holding your hands makes it very very difficult so Mm. sometimes I can see them and I say do you want me to take my hand away and they get but I think it is that it's that preparation before the procedure of what you're going to do how it's going to go where the boundaries are where I might have to take over and also um, we always say to the women before that we're doing the procedure together we will be taught you'll hear us talking to each other and that's normal we're just talking about technicalities in the procedure so that that, you know when they hear me say buzz there or there or there they they think that that's normal which it is but also we have you know a very there has to be there's an agreement where at some points I will take over Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit like it's it's a physical I'm taking over now my procedure and and there's an agreement that that had just happens yeah I just find it really interesting I've been thinking about it for years how people learn these things you know teaching a surgical skill is one thing and then this this is such a multi-dimensional process so that it's really interesting how you've developed that um yeah, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's been developed by my, <laughs> it, it's just developed kind of being trained and knowing what worked for me what helped me and then being able to train three different people has it don't get me wrong no, nothing is ever perfect and it's definitely never easy I think they they would all say that they'd like it to be a bit quicker probably and I'm sure <laughs> the people who want um, a better trained workforce would say they want it to be quicker but it's just it has sort of naturally you grow as a teacher and a trainer just just as you do as a doctor yeah do you think there's going to be enough invasives over the next sort of few years for all the subspecialty trainees coming through no I don't think there will and I think the reason that is is because of the reduction in the amnios and CVSs. that's what yeah. all our trainees start from that's when as we described that's when you get that feeling of how much pressure you need to put in how far you can go that knowing that almost sort of muscle memory of knowing yeah. if I go this far this is where it will go yeah. and I don't think you can learn that on anything other really than amnio and, and CVS yeah. knowing how you know just small little adjustments in your probe will change that window and, and make it a successful procedure and, and, and not yeah. and also as you've quite rightly alluded to which I've never sort of thought about before that that doing a procedure that requires a woman to lie really really still and trust you sometimes with that anesthetic if it's you know with an mm-hmm. amnio and that you're having to talk, talk to the woman as well and you have to be able to learn that in a way where actually the procedure itself isn't a highly technically challenging procedure yeah so I, I, I don't know how we're going to address that you know transfusions have reduced because of anti-deprophylaxis further advancements may mean that transfusions reduce even more and so that natural progression of amnio to cvs to to transfusions to fetoscopy or other you know shunts things like that i don't think is going to happen we're seeing an increase in the number of lasers that that sort of happened over time and that's probably because of introduction of rcog guidance and now surveillance okay. 
hypothalamic pregnancy. That's interesting. But without that first sort of set of needle training, um, I think we may have to think about a different training in phytoscopy. Okay. So if I was to go back a little bit to research, you've talked about how you serendipitously ended up in it. I'm still very impressed that you went up to Mark Kilby at a conference and presented yourself. That's amazing. I think I waited, I'm trying to remember. I think I waited till a break and then I think I followed it up at the, the conference dinner when, when there may have been a few drinks that have been had afterwards. <laughs> Thinking about your own research and, you know, for, for anyone who looks you up, you've been involved in lots of different things. You've published a lot. What what are you most proud of, you say, your research babies? Oh, that's <laughs> a really difficult question. I mean, I, there's nothing that can replace having your first paper accepted to the Lancet as a first author. <laughs> but, um, and I can still remember when it was because it was the Pluto trial. Right. And it had been eight years in the making. Wow. Um, and <laughs> I'd literally just had my second baby and got the email <laughs> saying it's been accepted and it was like this is uh this is just amazing so th- there's oh, nothing I think brilliant. that can you know that first grant that first acceptance the many rejections um <laughs> and, and that's still something that I find very very difficult and I think unless right. you be prepared for rejection you can't be an academic yeah the first green top guideline uh the uh-huh. first fetal growth green top guideline I think for lots of reasons again it was a long time in the making and until I think you've written one of those guidelines I don't think you can understand how how different it is to sort of just doing your own research is that a single thing that I'm most proud of I think it, it changes over time I think if you're proud mm-hmm. if you're simply proud of one thing then actually it doesn't appreciate the breadth of what research yeah. does you know we all talk about impact and measuring that impact and things and, and some things might have had a more measurable impact in others in terms of if it's changed a guideline and then changed care yeah. but for me sometimes it's about the journey that I've had along the way how difficult or challenging it was you know I've just had my first person that came to me with their CV and said can yeah. you help me but in that same way um, just be appointed as an associate professor so Vicky Hodgett's oh, water wow. and being able to do what somebody else did for me that's one of my proudest achievements I think being yeah. able to we always say put your hand down and help somebody else up the ladder so for somebody to have completed what what is a really challenging journey I don't think yeah. anybody can kind of say that it isn't to combine an academic and a clinical career that with subspecialty training that with an interventional procedural <laughs> medicine job um, two children you know nobody can say that that isn't challenging and I think we should celebrate that but yeah. more importantly I think we should help facilitate that for other people that's brilliant I, I was actually going to ask you that very question how do you manage to do all that so how have I done it in the past how do I do it now again that's something that you completely evolve and, and develop yeah. over time I am very busy <laughs> I'm very super organized I like my to-do list I like my electronic diary we have a joke in our house that unless it's in the outlook calendar it doesn't happen whatever uh-huh. it is people's birthdays have to be in there and things like that more and more as I go on it is about saying no and 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 sometimes that's quite sad you have to say no to things that you really really want to do but the first time that you say yes to too many things and can't deliver and have to backtrack you you kind of sort of learn I'm very lucky that I'm very well supported by my husband who isn't medical and so he he can do a lot of the childcare I I have to say that you know I I wouldn't be able to do it without support with childcare I guess I have to say I've got understanding children Uh, they know that mummy can't come to every single play recycle that but if they tell me which is the most important I'll, I'll come I'll try I'll always try my best but I'll always if there's yeah. one that they say this one that I will come yeah what else keeping my yeah I have to be very very strict about my time yeah. and sometimes that you know I think as a clinical academic there's always you always feel that you're doing one a disservice uh-huh. 
I think you always feel that you could be doing more for one and more for the other. And one always takes over from one at another time. I don't think I ever feel that I've got the balance right. Uh-huh. I don't think anybody ever does. <laughs> but I just think myself very lucky that I have this opportunity to do so many different diverse things. Yeah, um, And that's enough to keep up with the <laughs> having to find another colour code to go onto the Outlook Diary <laughs> because there's another category that needs to go on there. <laughs> And what about, you know, the balance? How this going to sound silly? Do you have to put like rest on the calendar? <laughs> it's okay. I'm still, I'm, you know, I, I don't think until the day we retire that we've ever, <laughs> you know, don't please don't look at me and think that I have everything sorted in my life whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, this this isn't this isn't true. Um, every, I'm always learning things about myself. So one of the interesting things that I learned about myself one day was I had, I can't even remember what it was. I think I had a paper that I'd had the reviewers comments back and some of the reviewers comments are just were horrible and we're going to take oh. the time and I just couldn't face it so I started cleaning and tidying up my desk and I started saying to myself you're wasting your time why are you doing this why are you doing this and then when I'd done it I felt calm and I felt ready to attack the paper and I realized actually that was one of my coping mechanisms that when things are getting too much I had to tidy and now (laughs) I don't go so far as having tidying times in the diary but (laughs) I've learned certain things about myself that are my my way of coping when things get a little bit too much but also more importantly I've learned about the importance of rest yeah I know when I'm most productive so a lot of people know don't ask me to do anything important between two and four in the afternoon I'm just terrible (laughs) <laughs> early morning I'm brilliant two and four in the afternoon I have a slump and then I pick up again and okay. and so you know putting really really things that you need me to think about just don't put them there but I now know that about myself and I also know yeah. that I'm terrible at working in the evenings uh-huh. actually I can do it and if I have to do it if there's something that is a deadline the next day and I've not met it I've got to do it yeah but if it's about trying to catch up and get some work done that actually I'm not productive at that time I'm much better to spend that time with my family and have a rest and get up a bit earlier in the morning. I think learning those things about yourself, what is it that helps your mental well-being to cope with the workload? So for me, it's my tidying. And when are you most productive so that you change what you're doing? So the difficult things are in your most productive time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, two till four is a good time to just sit and screening emails and doing things like that when my brain really doesn't have to work. That's what's helped me the most, learning those things about myself, as well as sometimes learning to say no. (laughs) Still not best about that either. And I guess the other one is, um, you know, the the further one you get is is about delegation and letting other people take the lead on things it's important for lots of reasons well it it is reassuring to know that he has some time off as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah the work-life balance it's eternally interesting question to me is is how people manage that yeah first of all there's no you know I think as scientists we'd we'd love it if somebody could give us a formula and say right your (laughs) work-life balance is okay well done you've achieved that great good Mm -hmm. for you that never happens and I think it waxes and wanes you know it it changes and and I think that's another thing I've learned is that sometimes sometimes work does take over and you have to recognize that and limit the amount of time and I I just say to my family look I'm really sorry there's this going on and I've, I've got to give this but then next week we'll do xyz also i think there's the other way there's the other way when you realize that you have to come to the realization that sometimes there's something that's going on in your family that needs your attention it needs a bit more of attention that you can give and that your work is going to suffer and you just have to use the support of your friends and colleagues to say actually my family need me and i've got to do this can you help me and that's quite a hard thing for us to do as doctors and high-flying clinical academics to say actually i can't do it all 
Yeah. And at this moment in time, work can't take precedence. I need to be somewhere else and do something else. And I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And the first time that you realise that is horrible when you realise that you can't do everything. And the first time that you ask your colleagues for help because of it is horrible. But the response that you get is amazing. And once you've done it and realised that actually nobody can do it all, nobody yeah. gets the balance right. And at some point you have to stop doing one thing to allow to do the other. Yeah. That requires asking people for help. The response that you get things, why didn't I say that sooner? <laughs> why didn't I do that? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, we're kind of coming to an end now, but what are your top tips for people interested in fetal medicine, wanting to be, hoping to be a subspecialist in fetal medicine? I, I guess it depends where you, where you are in your career. So I think specifically thinking about trainees, don't, and, and I guess it depends where you are. So where you're yeah. You're training at the time and how much exposure you can get. The first thing I would say is there's no nothing better than just doing some ultrasound. Yeah. But then just, you know, getting your basic training, trying to get that past, you know, through your intermediate anomaly scanning, just spending time scanning women for lots of different reasons. You know, the skill of scanning itself, as you say, you know, having a woman lying there looking at the screen anxiously, how how you manage that, how you talk to her while you're doing it, being able to develop those skills are really important. So I think if wherever you are, if you can get that first exposure um, and those first set of skills, then that is the the first foundation. And then I think the next thing is about if you're not working in a tertiary fetal medicine unit, then actually some of the fetal medicine that's been done around, you know, fast type anomaly management around fetal growth, actually, you know, there's a lot of managing those and fetal growth that gives you the counselling skills and the planning and that interaction with families and the development of an agreed plan together that that will stand you in really good stead. So those things that you may not see as fetal medicine-y skills are actually the foundation to what we do and then I think the second thing is don't be afraid to come and say can I come to a fetal medicine list yes like any other part of medicine we're always oversubscribed and because of what we do we have to limit the number of people in the room but we will always accommodate people somewhere and there's no nothing that can replace that being in the room and and seeing the scan the counselling the management the intervention if you're you're lucky enough and any fetal medicine unit would welcome uh, you know a trainee with welcome arms who said "I, I want to come do that yeah. I think the final thing is that people aren't aware that is that there's a lots of, you know, talk to your deanery mm-hmm. because there's lots of training opportunities out there that people may not be as aware of as, as other people. So, you know, everybody knows that there's the run through training, of, you know, your, your, your ST training, where you've got to get your membership along the way. Everybody knows the curriculum and the matrix inside out. But, you know, there's lots of out of program opportunities. There's lots of opportunities for, you know, for um, research fellow clinical fellow jobs you know if you're able to just take a period out of your training to be able to do that and if you're really interested in maternal fetal medicine and, and want to do something like that then go talk to your uh, local big maternal fetal medicine unit and say you know is there any way that we can do something around this we've had lots of people who've come on you know have come during periods of UPAR for some training who've actually yeah. taken I can never remember what exactly they're called and this is but the ones that you can have periods of time out for targeted clinical training we've used some of those to help people uh, get some fetal medicine experience so lots of opportunities fabulous thank you well thank you for being so generous with your time and conversation i know from the feedback to our pilot episode that people found that approach to a conversation with with an expert in fetal medicine really interesting useful um, and quite inspiring and i i suspect this will be similar (laughs) and for me it's been quite a fangirl moment to have the opportunity to talk to you (laughs) so yeah thank you very much thank you 
Well, it was a lot of fun talking to Professor Katie Morris virtually while she was in her office in Birmingham. As I said, it was an enormous privilege to be trusted to discuss life in academic and interventional fetal medicine with one of my fetal medicine heroes. Thank you so much to Katie for her wisdom and honesty. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations in Fetal Medicine. Show notes are available with more details about some of the topics we discussed. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please email any feedback or suggestions to conversationsinfetalmed at gmail.com. Please rate, leave a review and subscribe. As you probably know, it helps the algorithms so other people can find us.